Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. You're listening to a special Citizens United at 10 Symposium episode of the show. In recognition of the 10th anniversary of the Supreme Court Citizens United decision, we're interviewing scholars about the research on the decision and the issues that it raises. We're also taking a look forward for things to watch for over the next 10 years. We'll return next week with our regular episodes. As usual, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast app or let others know about the show too. Our next guest on the Citizens United at 10 Symposium is Anne Harvey, professor of politics and affiliated professor of law at New York University. We'll be discussing her recent article, Does Money Have a Conservative Bias? Estimating the Causal Impact of Citizens United on State Legislative Preferences, which was recently published in the journal Public Choice. I'll include a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Anna, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me. Anna, I really enjoyed this paper, which I think made the point early on that Among other things, Citizens United set up a natural experiment for empiricists. I wonder if before we get into the core of your article and the research questions that you explored in this article, if you could maybe give us a little bit of background about some of the research questions that have been explored in this space and the run-up to this article, maybe some of your earlier research or uh, research by your colleagues that had an influence on getting to this paper. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. So there's really, I think, kind of two big outstanding puzzles in political science and law and economics about campaign finance that people have been circling around for a number of years, uh, including before the Citizens United ruling. And one of the puzzles is about the polarization of party preferences. So we have ways of taking legislators' roll call votes, whether it's in Congress or it's in state legislatures, and from their roll call votes, estimating where they stand relative to their fellow legislators. And consistently, time after time, we apply these methods to roll call votes, and we can pretty well line up our legislators on a a single left-right dimension, which we tend to think of as representing something like, how much do you prefer redistribution? It's essentially about taxing and redistribution. And one of the things that people have really grappled with is the Republican Party starts to move to the right in Congress starting in the 1970s. And it happens really after the 1976 election. And and we see Republican preferences just continuing to trend to the right. And Democratic preferences trend a little bit to the left, but not very much. The trend of the Republicans to the right has really been responsible for what we call polarization or the widening gap between the parties and their preferences over redistribution. And nobody's really identified a cause for that yet. And the second empirical puzzle that people have really grappled with is how do we estimate the effect of money in elections? So it's really hard to do. It's not as simple as just saying, well, if candidate X spent more than candidate Y, what impact does that have on her vote share? Or if donor, you know, if candidate X received more donations from a particular donor than candidate Y, is candidate X more likely to vote in favor of that donor's preferences? It's very hard to answer questions like that because what we call the endogeneity of money and donations and spending. So if I'm a candidate, I might not spend unless I'm in trouble electorally. And so that's going to make it hard to figure out, like, what's the impact of money? Because Because I don't really know ex ante, you know, what kind of electoral difficulty a candidate might be in before they spend. It's also similarly hard to figure out if I donate to a candidate and then the candidate votes in a particular way. Is that because of the money or because I simply donate to people who share my preferences? And then just finally, the money doesn't even have to be donated and it doesn't have to be spent. 
in order for it to have an effect. So if a candidate knows that there's money sitting out there on the sidelines and it could be donated to her opponent <laughs> if she votes in a particular way, right? That might affect her votes, even if the money's never donated and never spent. There's all of these issues in trying to estimate these things. And I had put those two puzzles together in some earlier work at looking at the ruling of the Supreme Court in Buckley v. Vallejo in 1976. This was, most of your listeners will probably recognize that Supreme Court case. It was, you know, the watershed campaign finance case that really charted the course for the court's current campaign finance jurisprudence by drawing a distinction between the constitutionality of restrictions on donations and the constitutionality of restrictions on spending. So in Buckley v. Vallejo, the court said it's a legitimate thing for legislators to be concerned about corruption in elections and large donations, transactions between donors and candidates raise the, at least the appearance of corruption. And so it's okay for legislatures to regulate donations, contributions, but spending by candidates, by campaigns, by independent organizations, spending is different because spending, you know, I could raise, and this is actually in one of the appellate cases about this, I could raise a dollar from every voter in my district. And then what would be the harm in spending that money? So they said spending is really a form of speech and, and we don't, we're uncomfortable with regulating it because it's not tied to that transaction between a donor and a candidate. And one other thing they said in, in Buckley v. Vallejo was that uh, spending, and this reflects the, if every donor just gave $1, what would be the harm in spending that money? They said, we think that spending just reflects voter preferences, that it's just a barometer the amount of money that you spend is just a barometer of how, how much support you have in your district. So in other words, spending shouldn't affect outcomes, right? It just, you know, you, you would have, the voters would have supported you if, even had you not spent that money. So I had done work on uh, Buckley v. Vallejo showing that the states that had caps on campaign spending, and it was just about like about half the states had these caps pre-1976, that was when the court's ruling was, those caps were all struck in Buckley v. Vallejo, when the court said, you know, you can't restrict, you can't put caps on campaign spending. So that created kind of this earlier natural experiment about the effect of removing campaign spending restrictions. And there were very clear effects on outcomes in the 1970s. And one of the effects was that Republican members of Congress who were running for election in 1976 in states affected by the repeal of the campaign spending restrictions that had been required by Buckley v. Vallejo. Those Republican members of the House were more conservative after they were elected than Republicans running in similar districts, but in states that were not affected by the Buckley v. Vallejo ruling. So there was this kind of intriguing, huh, it was in part just the removal of this restriction on spending, which would have had spillover effects potentially in house races. Was that, one of, was that one of the things that was responsible for the start of the rightward movement of the Republican Party? So you did previous work on Buckley v. Vallejo, a watershed case in its time uh, in the campaign finance world. Along comes 10 years ago today, Citizens United, another watershed campaign finance case, which also set up a natural experiment. What questions did you set out to answer in this article that Citizens United presented you the opportunity to look into? 
Well, so the Supreme Court after Buckley v. Vallejo, it was pretty clear that campaign spending restrictions were going to be held to a higher bar than campaign donation restrictions. But the court had carved out an exception for spending by corporations and unions, right? So these were you know, ever since the 1940s, there have been restrictions on the campaign activities of corporations and unions that are different from the restrictions placed on other kinds of organizations. And that's because of the concern of, you know, amassed economic power in these organizations. And so the Supreme Court had allowed spending restrictions on the independent spending of corporations and unions to continue to remain in existence after Buckley v. Vallejo, but it was gradually getting chipped away at by a series of court rulings that narrowed and narrowed that carve out. And Citizens United, of course, is the case when the Supreme Court said we're actually you know, we're going to completely ban any kind of restriction on independent spending by corporations and unions is now unconstitutional. We're going to just eliminate the carve out. And so that presented an opportunity to test the impact of the removal of a different kind of spending restriction because many of the states, just like in the situation that preceded Buckley v. Vallejo, many of the states had longstanding state level statutory restrictions on independent spending by corporations and unions that were also struck by the court's ruling, even though the court's ruling in Citizens United was on its face directed only at federal rules because it was a broad ruling on constitutionality. It also struck these state statutes. And so that was the question to see whether there was an additional effect from removing these independent spending bans. And also, it was an opportunity to test the effect on state legislatures because the work that I had done on Buckley v. Vallejo we don't have measures of state legislator preferences back into the 1970s. There's some really heroic work that's been done by Nolan McCarty and Boris Shore, their two political scientists, to collect all the roll call votes of state legislators and estimate their preferences in every state legislature over time. And they've gotten back to, I think, certainly they've gone back as far as at least 1990, I think, but that's as far back as the state level estimates go. So this is an opportunity to see whether a removal of bans on independent spending by corporations and unions could affect what's happening in state legislatures. So there's been research before on whether Citizens United and the removal of the ban on independent expenditures had an electoral effect on just who's elected after that shock. Your paper is really looking at the preference of people who are elected. Could you discuss a little bit how you went about designing this study? Yeah. This earlier work that had been done by um, Tillman Klump and co-authors, it was published in the Journal of Law and Economics, was a really nice empirical design to estimate the effect of, as you said, this natural experiment of Citizens United striking the state statutes that were in existence and using those as a set of treatment states. So, you know, we can compare the pretreatment rates of, in their case, they were looking at whether Republican candidates contested state legislative races, whether conditional on contesting they won. You know, we can compare before and after probabilities of contesting and winning in the treatment states with before and after probabilities of contesting and winning in the control states, namely those states that weren't affected by the Citizens United ruling. And so we really just borrowed this design but instead, we're looking at the outcome of state legislators' preferences as estimated from the roll call vote. So we wanted to know not only, and what Tillman and his colleagues found was that, in fact, yes, Citizens United increased the probability that Republicans both contested and won 
state legislative races as compared to probabilities of contesting and winning in the control states that weren't affected. And so we wanted to apply the same design, but looking at whether once they were in office, did state legislators vote differently? Were their policy choices different after Citizens United relative to before Citizens United? It's a little bit tricky to do that because since we already knew that in the states that were affected by Citizens United, Republican candidates were more likely to win election, that in and of itself, that electoral effect from Citizens United would have meant that there would have been different policy choices, right? Because Republicans tend to be more conservative on a number of policy issues than Democrats. And so we had to try to find a way to isolate the effect of Citizens United on legislators' preferences, kind of holding constant that electoral effect. And what were the key findings from this study? Well, so what we tried to do is we tried to look within different subcategories of state legislative districts to try to narrow down exactly, to try to find samples of districts where we could hold constant the electoral effect across both treated and controlled states in our time period. And essentially what, by looking at different subsamples of districts, we found that the electoral effect was really driven by, and this is not really that surprising, but it was at least good to know, was really being driven by state legislative districts that were held by the Democratic Party in 2010, prior to the 2010 elections, but that transitioned to a Republican state legislator either in the 2010 elections or in the next election after that. It could have been 2011 or 2012. So the electoral effect is being driven by these districts that start out Democrat and are transitioning Republican. And so what we did was that we then looked within that category of districts. If you just, if you drop all the other districts and you just look within that set, what we found was that you no longer see an electoral effect because all of the districts that have the same electoral effect operating. But in the districts, in the states that were affected by Citizens United, these districts are electing, they're all electing, they're all moving from Democrat to Republican. They're all flipping party over the elections that are affected by Citizens United. But in the states that are affected by Citizens United, the Republicans who are being elected are more conservative. So they're shifting their Democrats farther to the right than in the districts in states that were not affected by Citizens United that were also flipping from Democrat to Republican over the same time period. So we did find that the removal of the independent spending bans on corporations and unions seemed to be not only increasing the likelihood that districts would transition to Republican control, but also that the Republicans who would be elected in those districts would be more conservative than Republicans elected in districts that were not affected by the ruling. Do you have any hypotheses for what mechanisms might be driving these effects? I think there was some mention at the top about preferences being a proxy in a lot of ways for redistribution. Is there a situation here where maybe the preference of the median donor might be more right-tailed and might be more conservative than the preference of a median voter, say? Or are there other mechanisms that might be driving these effects? Well, so this this is the hardest part, right? And the reason it's hard is because we'd like to, you know, in order to really be able to answer that empirically, your your first instinct is to say, well, let's look at who was donating. <laughs> okay, well, so who was, which organizations, which firms were, you know, increased their spending as a function of the Citizens United ruling and what were, what did the firms want and see if we can at least trace it qualitatively 
But that's a really, really hard ask, if only because, I, as I sort of mentioned at the outset, nobody had to spend anything in order for Citizens United, the ruling, to have an effect, right? Simply knowing that money now could be spent without restriction might have moved candidates' preferences, might have changed the nature of their campaign appeals, might have changed the nature of their votes once in office without the money actually having to be spent at all. And so it's very difficult to try to figure out empirically what the precise mechanism was that was driving this result. Theoretically, we have, it's a nice argument theoretically that the, if you just think about the distribution of voters and their preferences over redistribution, and then you think about the preferences of some distribution of donors, it's a nice theoretical argument to assume that the median preference of the distribution of, of donors or potential donors, or you could just think about the wealth distribution in the United States, is further to the right on redistribution than the preferences of the median voter. It's hard, like I said, it's hard to estimate that empirically because we have the, the distribution of actual donors that we can observe, right? And we could probably estimate preferences from that, but we don't have the distribution of preferences of potential donors. That's really the thing we would like to know, right? Because, because of the fact that money can affect outcomes from the sideline. And so we think that's a reasonable answer for what's going on, but it's hard to prove empirically. Your findings are necessarily limited to your research design, but I wonder if you could offer any high-level thoughts on some of the social, political, corporate implications of this article's findings. Well, you know, I think one of the things that I come back to is the ruling in Buckley v. Vallejo, which has had such an impact over the last, what, you know, 30 years. And the foundation of the ruling was this distinction between the potential corrupting influences of donating money and the potential corrupting influences of spending the money. And, you know, the court's empirical claim, they make this empirical claim in 1976 that spending will not have any independent effect on election outcomes because it's just reflecting voter preferences. And I think that's wrong. I think we have enough evidence now to suggest that that's just empirically not the case. And so then it makes you wonder about the course of that jurisprudence, right? So what do you do when the court has embarked on this enormously impactful set of rulings that appears to be based on an empirical claim that is faulty. So that's one thing I think about is, you know, wondering if there's any way to get the court's attention to re-examine this idea that spending is somehow, because it can affect outcomes, it can't corrupt outcomes. Would there be a way for the court to re-examine that? Beyond the court's jurisprudence, I mean, I think all of us, um, irrespective of your political preferences, get a little bit nervous about the idea that money impacts outcomes in a democracy, you know, particularly in the context of rising inequality. It's something that I think we're all presumably concerned about. And yet it's a little bit unclear what to do or how to regulate it, given the core current path. And what open questions or takeaways do you see for this work and your work in general on the electoral and partisan effects of money in politics, maybe particularly given that this is a symposium on Citizens United at 10, maybe with a little bit of a perspective look at the next 10 years of Citizens United or other campaign finance issues? Well, yeah, I think that the work that I and others have done, I think, should legitimately raise concerns about the consequences, the empirical consequences of the Supreme Court's campaign finance jurisdiction. So, 
there have been a number of papers that have shown, looking at either Citizens United or other campaign finance rulings, that these rulings do have an effect. And the effect appears to be one that increases the role of money and increases the role of donor preferences in elections. And that has consequences for policy and society and for efforts to combat inequality. I do think that there are a number of my colleagues in law schools across the country who are being creative with ideas for addressing the role of money in politics that could still be constitutional given the court's current path. And one that I've always liked is, although it goes against the court's, well, it goes against the court's preference for disclosure, but it would be to shield all information about where the money comes from. So, so we can't, right? so we can't, um, it would actually be the opposite of disclosure. It'd be no disclosure. Nobody can know. So there has to be some like central repository where the money goes in and nobody can ever know where it came from. And maybe that would eliminate some of the effects. Although presumably, you know, you, you have the receipt for your own check that went into the repository. And so maybe it's infeasible in practice. But I do think it is an area of policy where we really do need some creative solutions and perhaps some creative arguments to the Supreme Court about new directions. Our guest has been Anna Harvey, professor of politics and affiliated professor of law at New York University. We've discussed her article, Does Money Have a Conservative Bias? Estimating the Causal Impact of Citizens United on State Legislative Preferences, which was recently published in the journal Public Choice. I'd have linked the article in the show notes for today's episode. Anna, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast and the Business Scholarship Podcast Symposium on Citizens United at 10. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.